Welcome to the Kid Men Podcast with Dr. Val and Dr. Virginia, where we talk about everything Kid Men. And pull back the curtain on some of the surprises and challenges in children's ministry that nobody prepares you for. We just wanted to talk to you for just a minute before we start the episode, because it is a little bit different than something that we normally do. Yeah, so we um, have a safety and security expert with us, Faye Scott, which we are super excited about. Um, She's going to share with us some general tips for children's ministry safety and security, but we're also going to really be focusing on child protection policies, Mm -hmm. um, particularly, you know, protecting our children from abuse. Um, And so this is a very sensitive topic. It's a difficult topic. And so it's definitely um, maybe not the the episode that you want to play in the car while your kids are in the car kind of thing. And so it is one that is so important for our churches today. um, And we do want to handle it with a lot of grace and care, um, but also equip you with the kind of information that you need to protect your kids and keep your ministry safe. Right. And we just want to remind you, too, that we are not specialists in this area. We are children's ministers that do have to deal with this very important issue. And so it is vital that you work with your insurance company and your church's attorneys, and you work with specialists and therapists that know this particular topic and have been trained to work in this particular topic. But we did want to still share with you some of the things that we have learned over the years that are important to check out and important to pay attention to so that we could best protect our children and their families. Welcome, friends. We are so glad that you have joined us today. We are very excited. Virginia and I have a very sweet friend joining us in our conversation today, and we have been looking forward to this for a long time. Um, As a matter of fact, when we first started talking about inviting people to join us, Faye was at the very, very top of our list. And so we are very excited to have Faye Scott join us today. She is a content editor with Lifeway Christian Resources. She is just a recently retired children's minister with over 30 years of experience in children's ministry. And so we are super excited to have you with us today, Faye. Well, thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here. And I just want to thank you for the work that you guys are doing and um, just handing out that information, making sure that children's ministers have it. It's just such an important work that you guys are doing. So thank you. Well, thank you. And Faye is also a Dr. Faye as well. So oh, yes. I, I should have mentioned that for sure. All right. Oh. So it fits right in with us. We all have the same degree. So yes. uh, somebody cut us loose. I don't know who did that. I don't know. We might become a dangerous trio. Yeah, Faye, where did you, you got your doctorate at New Orleans? I did. New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. I graduated in 2019. And um, so it's been a lifelong journey of academia and I love it. I I don't entirely miss it right now, but I've been really busy. So (laughs) it's been good to be able to put it all to use. Like that's the most important thing is that it's not just sitting on a shelf, but I am being able to use it. So I'm grateful for that. And I've had an opportunity to do some adjunct teaching at NOBTS as well. Yeah, so that's fun too. Yeah. Well, Faye, why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself? Well, um, I just recently retired from full-time children's ministry um, after almost 30 years of serving uh, full-time in the church. 
and mainly with children's ministry, a little bit of women's ministry earlier on, but then children's ministry just flourished and grew. And so there really wasn't much time. And honestly, if you're doing children's ministry, you're also doing some women's ministry as well, because you're not only ministering to the children, but to their families as well. So the two went hand in hand really well. But I recently moved from New Orleans and um, retired to a little community right outside of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And I live three streets over, as my daughter says, four stops away from my family and my grandchildren. And then I have another grandchild who lives 45 minutes away. So it's been good. This past year, 2022, has been a year full of change. I don't think anything in my life stayed the same, except I kept my same phone number. That's (laughs) that's good. (laughs) Everything else has changed. And I will say all for the good. I um I recently went to um, the VBS preview and our uh, state childhood consultant saw me and he said, are you just living your best life? And I said, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to be here. So. Oh, good, good. Well, we're so excited for you, but it is a lot. I, I totally, totally can understand that the the moving and, and changing in life and, and these drastic changes can be a, a whole lot, but we are excited that, that you are able to be so close to your family and to be able to do, but I think God leads us in different seasons of our lives to be in different places and doing different things. Yeah. And, and so this is an exciting one. It is indeed. And I'm looking forward to just, I'm looking forward to seeing what he has in store for 2023. Amen. Um, in our time today with Faye, we're going to talk a little bit about safety and security, which is definitely Yay. something, yes, that is um, a, a big topic for Val and I. And I know it is for Faye as well. Um, I actually met Faye, um, gosh, when was it? It was January 2020, right? Um, at the Lifeway VBS preview. And Faye did, um, the best presentation on safety and security I'd ever seen. And so I went up to her afterwards. I was like, I need to get you to my church. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so can you share us start out with just a little bit about why you are so passionate about safety and security and kind of how you got into this realm in this area of children's ministry? Okay. Well, it really started out when I was uh, trying to choose my my topic for my dissertation. Mm. Um, And this was not the topic that I wanted to do. There were many other way more fun things. And my, um, my chair and I like discussed many things and this just kept coming back to me. But I think one of the reasons was obviously if you've done children's ministry for almost any length of time in the church, you'll realize that there are always situations that arise. And so if I went back over the last 27, 28 years, I could make a whole list of things that I've, that I've experienced and, had to deal with and to help families um, through issues that arose on the allegations of abuse and through abuse indeed. But I think the thing that really brought it all to a close was in 2015, 2015, I was serving in a church and I walked in on Monday morning, uh, just like a regular Monday morning. And when I walked in, my pastor greeted me at the door and said, I need to talk to you. And so immediately my mind did what everybody's yeah. mind does, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, I'm getting fired. Yeah. Yesterday and oh. all these things. And he said, I, I just fired our youth minister. And if you knew our pastor, you would know that he was the most, com- he is like the most compassionate guy you'll ever meet. So I knew something really terrible had to have happened. Mm-hmm. Well, to make a long story short, to cut forward, 
he had been involved in a relationship with one of our girls, one of our mm. youth, youth minister. And he had been involved in that relationship for about a year and a half. And it was discovered um, that night before. Mm-hmm. But of course, at that point, we didn't know. We only knew not even the tip of the iceberg. It was just right. so very little that came out. But because of an action that he took, the pastor felt there was no choice. He had to fire him on the spot. Yeah. And so when I tell you that everything in that church changed and so we walked through this journey with this family and the heartache and they are still suffering today. I mean, they stayed in the church and they tried to stay involved and we as a church tried to go alongside of them and support them and help them and do everything that we possibly could do. Man, I don't wish that on anybody. And uh, this young woman now has overcome as much as you possibly can. And she is flourishing. And I'm just oh so goodness. happy. Um, he is in jail and um, will be there until he'll probably be almost 70 years old when he wow. is released. Um, yeah. It was very serious. Yeah. And it rocked our world. It rocked the community in New Orleans. Um, just everything changed. And so I think that that was probably seated back in my mind but mm-hmm. I went on a retreat, on a personal retreat, to try to figure out what my dissertation topic was going to be. And it right. just kept coming up. And I'd even asked my chair, I was like, what about this topic? And he said, hey, really? Do you want people to like Google your name? And that's what's going to come up? <laughs> uh, no, that's a good thought. But as I went on that retreat, the Lord made it very clear. Yeah. This is a topic that you were to choose. And that was just, that was in the fall of, I submitted my dissertation in 2019. So that was in the fall of 2017. Mm -hmm. All the Me Too movement, the church movement, like none of that had surfaced. So I presented my dissertation topic. And about three months later, all of this just broke loose. Mm -hmm. You could just see the hand of the Lord just saying this, this needs to come out. Right. it was the time. It's a long way of telling how how all this came about, but it's this personal involvement and yeah. the personal tragedy and walking hand in hand with this family right. that I really think has made such a difference. Right. And my passion for helping churches to avoid yeah. that hurt and that right. pain. Right. Amen. Pain. Right. Yeah. So so let's start there. What are some foundational safety and security measures um, that we need to have in place for our children's ministries? I would say that the number one thing that you can do is screen your volunteers. Now, you know, anybody can lie. Anybody can give you false information. But I will say that if you are doing a diligent job of screening your volunteers, if there is someone, if there is predator, molester, whatever, whatever terminology you want to use, mm-hmm. if he or she is out there and they realize, man, this church is really serious. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to have to do, go through hoops. The chances are, and this sounds terrible because you don't want to just push them off onto another church, but the chances are they're going to back away mm-hmm. because there are other places that they can go. Because the two things that a predator wants is access and control. Mm-hmm. They need access to children and they need to be able to control the environment, control the situation. Right. And so if you can limit their access, then that's not really a place that they want to be. Mm-hmm. What so, are some of those screening steps that people can take? Okay. So everybody thinks that 
oh, we do background checks on our people. Like, so we're good. We're screening our applicants. Well, yes, you do need to do a background check. But I want to tell you, um, sometimes those things will bring up, like one time we uh, we did a background check and um, it was on a deacon. And um, and I found out that he had like three DWIs. Mm. It was like, maybe this isn't the person that I want leading our children's Bible study right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it doesn't always give you information like they have to be not just accused, but they have to be convicted yeah. or mm-hmm. to show up on their background check. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind. OK, but the number one thing is get them to submit an application like an application in writing. The other thing is check their references. I can't tell you how important that is, um, especially if they're people who move in. Like if you live in a transitory transitory environment mm-hmm. and people are always coming in and out, like go back and check their references. And you can also put a disclaimer on that reference form that you're not just checking the references that they give you, but you have permission to check the references that those references might give you. Mm-hmm. Right. So in other words, if I say, if I list uh, Virginia as a reference and I talk to Virginia because she's listed on an applicant's reference. And in the course of the conversation, Virginia says, well, you know, we serve together with uh, Valerie Davidson mm-hmm. and I don't have to go back and get their permission to call Valerie Davidson. Right. It's already implied. And oftentimes that's where you really get the most information is from those references from the references. Right. And then uh, the other thing is train, train your leaders so that they know what are the signs, what are the things, what do I do when I, when I discover or when I think that there's something going on. Right. And then have a check-in policy, but don't just have it, use it. Yes. yes. So many times, you know, people have a check-in policy and they say it and you go to pick up the kids. Does anybody even check the tag? No. Right. They don't. Right. So make sure that you use it. Um, I had a situation several years ago, a long time ago, which was what prompted the Lord to make me know that I needed to do a check-in system was a grandmother came to pick up her kids at church. She picked up her kids every day. We didn't have a security. This was like long ago. We didn't have a security system. I handed the baby over to the grandmother because why wouldn't I? Yeah. And about two or three minutes later, the mom comes in and says, Hey, I'm coming to pick up the baby. And I said, just gave her to your mom. And she said, did you give her, did you hand her over? Yes. And she said, Oh my gosh, my mom's an alcoholic. She's been on a drinking binge and she has been trying to get our children. And so we ran out of the building and that grandmother was loading that baby up in the car. Right. And that next morning we had a check-in policy and we started using it. So don't just have it, but use it. And then I would say cameras. Uh, I cannot tell you, how many situations that having those cameras in the classrooms um, and having them in the hallway, I cannot tell you how many situations um, we have either been cleared of or we've used it to, to be able to launch an allegation. Um, and that's actually how this youth minister that I was talking about, that's actually the initial thing that got, got him into trouble was a camera caught him doing right. something inappropriate and that's where it started. Mm-hmm. Then another thing that I think is super important is have a rule of three. Mm-hmm. And so what I my rule of three is, um, you know, Valerie and Virginia, like you guys are really good friends. I know that. I've known that for a long time. <laughs> and you were not related. But 
let's just say, let's just say that it's the two of you. Um, it's okay because you're not related, but I would say it might be a little bit harder for you, or let's just say that Virginia's sister decides that she wants to serve with her. Mm -hmm. So I would not just put Virginia and her sister together because honestly, if something happened, if an allegation right. were made, mm -hmm. right. um, her sister is most likely not going to testify against mm -hmm. Virginia. Right. And so a rule of three. And so two unrelated adults mm -hmm. are having three. And so a rule of three, if a child has to go to the restroom, then you're like, it's not just Virginia taking a child down the hall to go to the restroom, but take another child with you. Mm -hmm. If it be two adults and one child, most of us don't have that leeway to have two adults with one child, but you can have two children and one adult, mm -hmm. but just three so that you never find yourself alone with a child. And mm -hmm. I mean, ever, or if you do like, make sure that you're standing in the door, right. That you're observable and interrupted. Right. That's the two things mm -hmm. you want to keep in mind. Right. So, and restroom policies have restroom policies in place because mm -hmm. many, many allegations of abuse stem from inappropriate behavior that happens in the restroom. Right. Right. That's going to give you more, but <laughs> there's, there's so many, but, yeah. th but it is having those basic things. And one of the yes. things that I really appreciate that you said that I've learned over the years is you can't just have the policies in place, but you have to have a follow through yes. with it. And then you have to have a plan for how you're going to use them. Because I was always surprised at how many people, when I would run the background checks, um, where uh, they would actually have a felony or have something on their record. And when I would go back to explain to them, you know, why they weren't going to be able to work in ministry, they were surprised because they didn't think I was actually going to check. They, they thought they were just filling out the application and that I wouldn't actually follow through and find the issue. And so it, it just amazed me how people would think, oh, well, they're, they're, they may write it down, but they're not going to actually check. It's the same with the cameras as well. You have to make sure they're running correctly. You have to have a plan for how you're going to check them, for how you're going to store them, for how you're going to review things. And so, you know, you can't just have things in place and think that those, you know, protections are going to take care of you. You have to actually have a plan for how you're going to use all of those systems. And I'm sure that anyway, a, a particular company that does a lot of safety uh, training has always, she has always said, it's better for you to not have the policy, right? If you're not going to use it. It's better for you to not have the policy because if you have the policy and you don't implement it and something happens, mm -hmm. you're in a lot more trouble because you knew what you were supposed to be doing and yet right. you chose to not do it. Right. So make sure that if you have that policy in writing that you are implementing it. So right. let's hope that there's both, right? That the policies yes. are in place and that they are being used. Right. That's, yes. the, best, that's the best scenario. <laughs> for sure. Yes. Well, thank you, Faye. We we have another episode as well on some more general safety and security um, policies and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, if our listeners and our viewers want to go check that out as well. Um, but let's go ahead and move on and say, what are um, some of the warning signs that we need to watch for in children that may indicate that there's abuse taking place? Okay. I'd say that the number one thing that you need to watch for is a change of behavior. So, if you have a child that's normally very quiet, very timid, and all of a sudden this child is just acting out or just um, just acting in behavior that's just not indicative of their typical behavior, whether it's a timid child or a child who's normally very outgoing, then there's a flag there. Um, 
So I would say a change in behavior from either an active mode or a very timid mode. Like that's, that's something that you want to dig into and um, try to figure out what exactly is going on. And then I'd say just, uh, if they start doing like just strange things that are just not indicative of actions or words or language. Um, and then if you start to see that they become depressed or they're very fearful or they isolate themselves, like they don't want to trust anybody, then you may want to look into that as well. But I would say that those are some things, those are some initial things that if you see any of those, those should be flags for you. And what, what advice can we give to our volunteers? Because obviously we can't be everywhere all the time. Right. What guidance do we give our volunteers who see that whenever we don't, whenever we're not around? I would say like, that's one of the things in your policies and procedures manual, like you should have that spelled out. So who do they go to? Do they, I wouldn't say to go to the parent first. I would say that as a children's, like that's, that's something that every church is going to have to decide. So if they have a children's minister on staff, then do they go to you? Do they go to a minister of discipleship? Do they go straight to the pastor? Like that's something that you as a leadership team should decide. And you give very clear cut instructions to your leaders so that when those incidents do happen, that they know what to do. It's in black and white in the policies. And plus, if you've done the training for them, then you've already discussed those procedures with them as well. So that when those situations arise, you know what to do, or they know what to do. Um, and I would, the other thing that I want to say, and I may say it a little bit later, but also it's not your job to decide if there was, if there was right. an incident that really happened. It's not your job to decide, oh, like I saw her acting strangely. So clearly there's abuse that's going on. Um, that's the job for the authorities. Our job is to report their job is to investigate. Okay. So the other thing that's important to remember is that whenever you file that report with DCFS or child protection, um, it may be that don't think, well, this is not enough for them mm -hmm. to like come in and really do an investigation. What happens is when you make that phone call and you first file that report, they are obligated to have to keep that on file. Right. So let's say you make a report today Six months later, somebody else calls in and makes a report and it's very similar or right. something else has happened. Now they have two different people who have noticed something, then that's a trigger. And they're a lot more apt to act on that because you already have that that bound, that first initial right. report in place. Right. So right. just remember that even though they don't go out and investigate it, don't think that your your report has just gone by the wayside or that it's not important. Right, right, right. Absolutely. And I always tell my volunteers, I say, you know, if you ever have a concern, you know, please come to me, you know, for that exact reason. Because sometimes they they have a tendency to think even with just coming to us with this to the staff, they think, oh, well, I'm just I'm just being overly sensitive. Like I'm the only person seeing this, like da-da-da. And I tell them, I say, no, you know, one, I want you to come to me. Um, and if it is something reportable, I will help you and we will do that together. Um, and two, you know, for that same reason, I said, you, you know, you may be the third volunteer who's noticed. And, it, and in our state, in the state of Florida, um, every adult is a mandatory reporter. And right. so um, I explained, you know, I explained that to my volunteers and I say, look, it's much more effective if you 
make the report if you saw it. Um, you know, if I try to make it secondhand about a volunteer, mm -hmm. you know, legally you're, you're obligated to because of our state laws. Right. Um, but, you know, I will help you do that and we will walk through that process together. I think you made two good, good points there is that they are obligated to report. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is to let your volunteer know that you're not going to be out there on a limb, right? I'll be right there with you and we can work through this together mm -hmm. and I'll give you the support that you need so that it's not just, you don't have to feel isolated and alone. Yes. We talked about how this became the topic of your dissertation. And one thing that Dr. Virginia and I know very well is all the research and all the work that goes in to trying to make sure that you have all of the information that you need to be able to discuss a topic. So what was some of the information that you found out about abuse that was helpful in your research as you were writing? Okay. Right, that's a great question. Um, so I think that before we go any further, it's really important for uh, for us to give a definition of abuse, because I think that what happens, especially with lay volunteers who are not familiar with this topic, mm -hmm. they think that abuse only is intercourse, that there has to be sexual intercourse for there to be abuse. And that is so not true. Mm -hmm. um, and so let's look at it. So it's it could be fondling. It could be uh, genital contact. It can be exposure to pornography that constitutes abuse. Um, talk, communicating in a sexual manner over the phone um, or you know through through the internet, and then um, exhibitionism, oral sex, of course, intercourse. So if if any of those things, like if you suspect any of those things are happening, that is abuse, and that is a reportable incident that needs to happen. Okay. So um, just that's important that you make sure that everybody understands that that's what abuse is, but also like statistics regarding abuse. You asked Valerie, what are some things I was um, this first one? I wasn't shocked to find out, but some of the others I was, but um, biological parents, like in a, if a child lives in a home with their two biological parents, mm -hmm. they are much less likely to be abused. Okay. Unfortunately, um, Children who live in a home with step parents, often you see an increase from the level of abuse in biological home uh, parents, homes with both biological parents than you do of a child living in a home with a, with one step parent. Um, foster children, this one will really break your heart. Kids who are foster kids are ten times more likely to be abused than kids who live with their biological parents. Mm -hmm. And then kids, this is another statistic that unfortunately is probably very, very common. Kids who live in a home where there's a live-in parent mm -hmm. or live in a live-in um, are 20 times more likely to be abused than kids mm -hmm. who live with their biological parents. Mm -hmm. And then unfortunately kids who have disabilities are mm -hmm. also twice as likely to be abused. Well, we talked a little bit too about how we are working to screen our volunteers as they come in. We've talked about doing things like having the applications and checking references and, and doing background checks. However, you know, you might need to do that in your state, according to your insurance, all of those kinds of things we've talked about before. And Virginia and I talked a little bit about that during our safety and security um, episode earlier about, you know, the different things that you kind of need to look at. But what are some of the things that are red flags to you when you are interviewing or screening a potential volunteer 
prepared for your children's ministry? What are the types of things that you really try to watch for? One thing that's going to make it really difficult is there's no real profile of an yeah. abuser. Right. And, um, I read a quote that says um, abusers look like everybody else. Like there's not, you can't walk down the street and say, wow, that person really looks like they're a potential type of child abuser. Right. And so that's why it's so important for you to go through all of the different steps and then just make sure that there are no red flags. What you'll find in abusers is that they will go, it's not something that just happens accidental. Most of them will take their time. If you look at the profile of most molesters, they are respected, respected people in the community, respected people in the church. Mm -hmm. um, one of my really good friends had a children's volunteer who was there for everything. He, you know, he was a chaperone for kids camp. Like she knew that she could call on him to do anything. He was probably in his mid fifties. He drove the church bus. Like he was a deacon. He was a pillar in the community like all of those things. And he was a faithful volunteer. Well, they had Disciple Now at their home. And if you know what Disciple Now is, it's when the kids go and they spend the weekends in different homes. Well, one of the young women who was in their home, they always had girls, okay? Mm -hmm. Always been right. She was at their home. She was uh, getting ready to take a shower. And she noticed something suspicious looking in the corner of the bathroom. And she thought it was a camera. So she got out of the bathroom, called her mom. And this young girl's suspicions were right. And um, when they went there, they found years of photography that this man had taken um, of kids in the church. So I'm saying all that to say, you can't just always look at a person and say, oh, this is somebody I think might be a suspect. When right. you see something, act upon it and listen to the power of the Holy Spirit. But some there are three different kinds of abusers. And so the first one is the one that we always hear about, right? Stranger danger. When you teach your kids, don't go with a stranger. Like make sure if somebody offers you candy, like stay away from them. And like, you know, don't get in a van. Like we teach all of those things. And while those things happen, they are by far the least common types of abuse. Right. So even though that's the most prevalent one, it's the one that we hear about, that's the mm -hmm. least prevalent. The second one is the acquaintance offender. And so as a church, that's where we fall into the category of acquaintance offenders. That takes, um, that category encompasses coaches, uh, teachers, uh, teachers at church, like all of those, all of those people that we know who they are, but they're not part of our family and they're not strangers. Okay. Right. So those are the people that we need to look, look, that's probably where we deal with most with in the church. And then there's the familial offender, like somebody within their family who mm -hmm. is the abuser. And that doesn't need, necessarily need to be like the parent. It could be a cousin. It could be an uncle, mm -hmm. just somebody, or it could be an aunt. Okay. So mm -hmm. we need to like, you know, we historically talk about abusers as males, but they're not always males. Right. Um, Females also are abusers. Right. Um, like about 20% of all abuse is done by female perpetrators. Mm -hmm. We need to keep that in mind too. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think that one of the other things that we need to look for is grooming. Grooming happens pretty often. Mm -hmm. um, you can see a, a potential abuser because what they'll look for is they'll typically look for a child who's isolated or maybe a child who's depressed 
or a child who just really is craving attention because he's not getting that need met at home or somewhere else within his family. Um, they'll look for kids who are in the habit of lying because after all, if he's always in the habit of lying about little things, it doesn't have to be big things, yeah. like, you know, Oh, somebody took my lunch or he hit me or, you know, we went to the zoo yesterday, you know, during good and well, if they didn't go to the zoo yesterday, right. like there's a pattern of lying. So if that child yeah. is like, if he has that pattern and then all of a sudden he says, well, you know, Mr. So-and-so did this to me yesterday. Well, how do I know that's true? Because you lied about your lunch. You lied about where you went. Like you, you know, you're in a habit of telling lies. Mm -hmm. I'm going to think long and hard before I make an allegation against Mr. So-and-so who's been like a Bible study leader for like the last 10 years Right, is like, you know, um, the vice president of a bank or, you know, whatever it is. And then the only, the only, Thing that I have is just this child who normally makes up stories is now saying something about this person that probably will get discounted. It's going to be really hard for somebody to believe his allegation. Right. Oftentimes they look for that kind of a child. Well, I think that was one of the most surprising things for me when I first, you know, began to look at how do we protect our families? How do we protect, protect our children? Because I don't think that people realize how methodical abusers can be, you know, people who have the intent to abuse children have taken their time to learn how to find victims. They take their time to learn where are the best locations for me to be able to go undetected to do this. They are, they become experts at deception and how they can give a particular view of themselves to the world while they hide, you know, this, you know, this issue in their lives and what they do to people to hurt them. And so it's, it's an odd thing because we don't really think about, wow, somebody actually goes to all this trouble to do this, but they really, really do. And that's one of the reasons why we talk so much about the need to have these things in place in churches, because since we tend to be so trusting and so open and so wanting visitors to come and people to be involved, that churches really do become a very prime location. So it's just amazing when you start to realize all of the steps that they go through to be able to find someone to abuse. And so we want to make it as difficult as possible in our setting for that to happen. And so many times it's those family members, those church members that have been there forever, that everyone has known forever. And they just assume that they can be trusted because they've known them for a very long time, but you never know what is really happening behind closed doors. And so you can't just assume that because you've known this man for 20 years, that that means that it's okay to not have a background check on him, or it's okay for the kids to be alone with him, or, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to really think through. That's why we have two or three adults in the room and we saw holes in the doors and make windows in the doors because (laughs) we don't want things happening behind closed doors. We have all those policies in place. Yeah. Remember, observable and interruptible. Thank you for bringing up the windows and the doors because I didn't (laughs) need to bring that. But uh, yes, you can you should always be able to go in and be able to observe what's going on and to be able to hear the interaction of what's going on um, Mm -hmm. between the leaders and the children. Mm -hmm. But my mind was just going a thousand miles an hour as you were talking, Valerie, of 
just all the different things. And you're right. Like the behavior of, of a molester is often, it's very repetitive and it's also very predictive. Um, it, research has been done on uh, people who were um, in prison for abuse and like their patterns of repetition um, often follow each other. Like they may not realize it's not like they're picking up a manual. Right. It's just, it's that sickness, that illness in them. And there are certain patterns that they follow. So once we learn it and once we can discern it and we have our flags that go up. And I would say to you again, like when those flags go up, then you need to to like pay really close attention or like make sure that you're following. Be aware that they will take deliberate steps and go the extra mile. And that's what grooming is. Like all of those things that I told you about, that's exactly what grooming is. They, they come in and they, they make, themselves needed they um they groom what we call the gatekeeper so the gatekeeper so virginia i know that you've got your two small children okay your your babies like you guys are the gatekeepers okay what'll happen is they'll start to work with you and build up your trust Um, they become needed because then especially in a single family home like I can't get my child back and forth to basketball practice. Right. I can't get them to, to the yeah. soccer games. But here I am, like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm here. I'm going to help you. Well, and I think one of the things that I tell children's ministers a lot, uh, you know, when we're talking about all sorts of different things, that there are, are things that are going to happen that you have control over. There's things that you don't have control over. There are situations in the church that you, you know, might not like, but you have to kind of deal with. And then there are hills that you're going to die on. Yes. And for me, safety and security has always been the hill that I was willing to die on. Absolutely. And I'm saying it's not easy. I can remember one church where I served, there was a gentleman that was involved in everything and everyone loved him and everyone had known him forever. And he was super involved in the children's ministry and the youth ministry and with everything. And when I came in, the church had no, no background checks. They had no check-in system. They had no kind of security whatsoever. And so the first thing that we did were the applications and the background checks to, Mm -hmm. to be able to do all of that. And he refused Mm -hmm. and it caused a, a great problem that took me a very long time to work through because everyone couldn't believe that I was going to require him to do that. And so he always refused. He would never agree to do it. And so I didn't use him in children's ministry anymore. And we no longer had him as a bus driver or for activities or for any of that. And over the years, you know, I I took a a hard hit on from people a lot on, I can't believe that you're not doing this, that we've known him forever. There's no reason for you. But I had that hard line that I drew in the sand because, you know, we have to be able to have a safety and security policy in place. And you can't allow one person to not do that. It has to be across the board. We mentioned that earlier. You have to be consistent and you have to follow through. And so it was a hill I was willing to die on. And you mentioned that, and I'm glad that you did, because that was another, I think that probably turned out to be one of the most valuable aspects of my dissertation was um, that when I launched my survey, um, I asked like, what, which of these measures is your church implementing? And if you're not, what's preventing you from doing it? Mm -hmm. And the highest level, like the thing that people answered the most was that it was um, 
people didn't believe that there was a need for it. That came from not only church leadership, but from the volunteers and the leaders within the church. Right. And especially in a smaller church, we know everybody. Like, well, I've known him all of my life, or we don't have the budget to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. And so that's the hardest thing that as a children's minister going in and trying to implement these policies is exactly what you said, Valerie. Is this a hill I'm going to die on? Right. And I would say it is a hill that you should die on. Amen. Right. Well, and it amazes me because we we did a conference one time at a very large church in a town that had absolutely no safety and security policies. They didn't do check-ins. They didn't do background checks. They did nothing. And and I'm talking like a, a 1,500-member church. So it was large. And as we were going through the safety and security conference, we actually had an attorney that was a member of the church that stood up and said, this is ridiculous. We don't need any of this. You know, we've lived here our whole lives. And so everybody was looking and saying, well, this is an attorney that's saying we don't need this. And so it's having to come back and say, you know, these are the reasons why you need this in place. You know, these are are the things that you have to think about and things that you have to look at. And so it's, it's a very common thing that to run across that opposition because people are so afraid of the thought that someone in their church might be doing something that, you know, that, that there's just that, that fear. Well, it is to me a, a big red flag. Yeah. If somebody is so adamant about not, <clears throat> you know, doing something right. about not having something checked about not having something in place, it does make me question, okay, is there a reason why you are having such a strong visceral reaction to this, yeah. as opposed to just, you know, maybe being somebody that you know, values privacy or, you know, feels like that we shouldn't have to do this. And, and I understand that. And if that's your, and that was one of the things that I would say to people, if you feel that way, you are, are very welcome to feel that way, but that I, I can't have you working in children's right. ministry though, if you feel yeah. this way. So it's not that I'm assuming that you've done something because you're refusing. I'm just saying that these are our policies. And yeah. so insurance companies have helped a whole lot Yes. In the last few years to help church members understand, you know, when you say it that way, our insurance policy requires us to have this in place. That can help a lot with people who are not wanting to put these measures in place. I'm glad that you mentioned insurance companies, Valerie, because oftentimes if you go to like whatever your church's insurance is, if you go to their website, especially some of these bigger companies, like I'm just going to say Brotherhood Mutual Mm -hmm. has so much information. They have videos on everything yeah. on how to go to camp, how to, what the screen policy should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, they talk about grooming, like they talk about the whole thing. So it's a very comprehensive training and it's absolutely free because they yeah. want to make sure that their churches are implementing these policies. Right. So go to your website, uh, protect my ministry, ministry site. Right. All of those companies um, have some information that you can get absolutely free of charge. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you have to be winging this and going, going right. at it alone. No, right. Do a little bit of research and it's not very hard to figure out the um, ERL Southern Baptist convention, the ethics and religious Liberty commission mm-hmm. uh, several years ago, put together a whole set of policies and procedures and they gave you links and that's still on their website today. It's called caring well. And so that's an that's a free resource that you can go to that'll give you sample policies and procedures, um, where to go for background checks. All that information is completely right. free. Right. So, Amen. The other thing that we haven't talked about at all, and I know that we're probably running out of time, is just spiritual <laughs> implication of what happens when there's sexual abuse within the church. So a child's sense of faith, an adult's sense of faith, can be completely shattered 
when there is abuse that happens, especially when it happens in the church and especially when it's a person that they trust, a leader that they trust, whether it's a volunteer mm-hmm. or a professional ministerial staff person who is who is the perpetrator. So much can happen. Their lives are completely devastated, especially if it's a, a person who is faithful to, to serve, a faithful who is co- a person who is committed to being there. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, this abuse is, is done by that person. There is so much trust. Their trust is just shattered. Mm-hmm. And go back and think back to why does the church exist? Mm-hmm. It exists so that we can lead people to Jesus Christ mm-hmm. so that they can have a relationship with him so that they can trust in him as their savior. We trust in him to forgive us of our sins. If that's what we're trying to do, then what right do we as a church who's not protecting our children, who are not providing trustworthy leadership, who are not providing a safe environment, what right do we have to talk to that person about trusting in Jesus when they can't trust us mm-hmm. to make them safe? So do you see the implications of yeah. what can it's there's so many facets of the damage that can be done by sexual abuse in the church. Right. So we need to make sure we need to be on guard. Um, I, my topic is together regard because it's not just one person. You yeah. the minister cannot be the sole person who is right. together regard. When we're all working together, we're all trained, mm-hmm. we're all equipped, we're all on the lookout and we're all, mm-hmm working together to provide the safest, securest environment mm-hmm. we can guard against having someone's life completely destroyed by abuse. Right. Right. Well, this has been so great. Faye, we thank you so very much for joining us today to talk about this topic. I know it's incredibly difficult and it's something that we so don't want to have to think about, but I think it's something that's so important for us to realize is a reality. It's just, it's, it's life as we know it now. And it's something that we have to do. And, you know, my heart, and I know Virginia has heard me say this on several occasions now, is if any of this information that we hand out can prevent one person from having to go through the tragedies that we've talked about, then it is so worth it. So be brave, be courageous, stand up and do the right thing and uh, be willing, as you said, uh, uh, Valerie, to to let that be the hill that you're willing to die on. Thank you, ladies. Thank thank you. you. And friends, we just appreciate that you joined us today. We hope that you found the information helpful. As always, we appreciate that you subscribe and like and all of the things for us um, as we share with you this information. If you have questions, if there's more on this topic that you'd like to know, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know um, because we would be glad to answer any questions or, or try to point you into another direction to find them. So we hope that you have a wonderful week and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.